Massive rise of domestic violence in times of corona crisis makes governments, NGOs, and citizens much more innovative in how they support victims of sexual and gender-based violence. You've been watching a series of interviews with Brianna Hertford looking into sexual violence and what actually happens during times of corona. This is a bonus episode where we're looking into the missing pieces of the puzzle, such as what's actually happening to the perpetrators in jails. Do the victims have access to medical care or abortion rights and other issues? So tune in. Some people say that during the lockdown, victims of sexual violence no longer have access to the institutional support, the courts, the police, the jails that they could normally count on to protect their health and safety. In our previous episodes with Brianna, we've addressed a lot around what is sexual and gender-based violence, what are the specifics in the COVID context, how can you yourselves be activists and leaders in the situations and help the victims. So now in this another top-up bonus episode, we've discussed uh, that we could go a bit deeper into like what is really the institutional context supporting the victims. So thanks, Brianna, again for having time for this. Thanks so much for having me. And so for all of you who haven't been listening to the previous episodes yet, so that you understand a bit more about the context. Listen to the previous episodes and please share it with everybody who could benefit from Brianna's wisdom because there's a lot around what is classified as sexual violence and how it's different and much more challenging now in COVID times. So Brianna, what is different? Is it possible that because of the lockdown, the institutions have somehow put the victims and survivors of violence, most likely unintentionally, in greater mm-hmm. danger than it would have been before when we have access to normal, Um, justice system? Unfortunately, yes, there's a trend that um, a lot of people are seeing who work in the field with survivors of domestic and sexual violence, where either services are not available or classified as emergency essential services, or the information isn't out in the general public that these services are still available. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes really challenging. There are, as you said, I believe very unintended consequences of a lot of global health measures that are really important, but have had really, really damaging impacts on people's lives and safety. For example, you mentioned jails and court systems. That's one aspect that is very challenging because for a global pandemic, it makes sense to not be holding people that you've just arrested in detention cells and while they're awaiting their trial and things like that, or to be trying to release any prisoners. That is this like really violence. true? Because also we wouldn't want to be like spreading any fake news here. Do you really think it's the case that normally when whoever is suspicious of having committed this kind of violent mm. act, they wouldn't really be held in detention and they would be sent home? home in order not to be creating a greater risk of spreading the virus in the jails or whatever the detention services are? Well, I mean, even before the lockdown and the global pandemic that we're seeing, sometimes if a call to law enforcement happened, if the police were unable to make an assessment that there was a certain level of danger, then they may or may not have the legal jurisdiction to hold somebody overnight, for example. Mm -hmm. But again, these situations are going to vary depending on the legal context, 
the the location and the type of violence being experienced. A lot of times overall, people, sorry, yeah, overall no, we could say that uh, that some of the people who would normally be put in jail are now at home. Yeah, so this is this is the risk: is that on the one hand, it's a very I I think it's a very good. I mean, I'm not a health uh, expert, but it makes sense to reduce prison populations. However, we do need to be thinking through the consequences of that if somebody is currently incarcerated due to acts of sexual or domestic Absolutely. violence. Yeah. I mean, that's that's something where there needs to be contact with the survivor and safety planning and figuring out alternative measures. Because, you know, if I've just called the police and they've taken my partner and then my yeah. partner's back the next morning, that's more dangerous for me. Totally. Um, and so in so, the previous episode, we, when you speak about alternative measures, this is what we were discussing, that if normally they would have access to some kind of support structure, which now can have limited capacities to support them. That's Mm -hmm. why it's important for us to show up if we know that somebody is in this kind of vulnerable relationship to see if within our families, networks, communities, we can somehow help these women and men who can be in danger, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like creating parallel support structures in the informal world that is now totally on the rise. Yeah, well, that and also being able to, from the level of local authorities to national to regional, being able to communicate to everyone what is available and what qualifies as essential services and making sure that certain services are still seen as essential. Because, for example, another component to this is the court systems. So if perhaps my partner is not physically abusive, but I need to file a civil complaint or go for a restraining order, if courts aren't functioning like that, I don't Or everything is simply slowed down. Right, or if it's slowed down, or if I just don't know, or if I am afraid of the virus, or I'm afraid of going out and um, getting a fine from the police. So it's Mm -hmm. things like this that really can can add additional barriers. It's hard enough to to go and and seek help either through the legal system or through law enforcement, but these things are added complications. And a super important element of all of this is obviously medical care, which is also on a bit of a slowdown when the normal kind of prevention other like medical care is not really happening and everybody's discouraged from going to medical centers not to increase the health risk. Do you think that's also a factor that the victims don't have access to as much yeah, medical care, abortion services, whatever they need uh, whenever they're victims of a sexual assault? Yeah, of course. Both for survivors of sexual violence and domestic violence, the healthcare system is is crucial, both because healthcare providers are oftentimes the individuals that are somebody that you trust, you are often there alone without your partner, so you could talk about what's going on at home. And also, they're going to see signs of abuse that maybe, you know, your coworker won't. If your dentist is, you know, paying attention to your teeth and you've suffered damage, then they can mm-hmm. ask follow-up questions and talk to you about options and figure out what's going on. So there's that aspect, as well as the aspect of not being able to receive acute care when an incident actually occurs. And yeah. when I say not being able to receive acute care, of course, emergency rooms are open and essential medical procedures are available, but abortion is not necessarily classified as essential in all countries at the minute. Some countries who have different laws around abortion 
you know, people used to travel to. That's what I was just thinking about. That we knew there was almost the internal EU market for abortions. Yeah. In some countries, it's always accessible. So this is another. Yeah, I just got present to how because you can't even cross the borders. It's another thing making their life impossible. And another almost piece of this whole puzzle that we haven't addressed in the previous episodes is the kids who may be involved in the whole violent or unhealthy dynamics in the family. Talk to us a little bit more about how, I mean, I don't even know how to best address the question because it's a whole different topic, but obviously oftentimes either the kids are directly being a target or they're witnessing what's happening at home. Yeah, talk to us about what do you feel is the situation now in all of these homes where all of the parents are praying for the reopening of the school so that they right. release them into their normal, healthier environment. Yeah, I think I think for any parent right now during lockdown, everyone is, is, hell is anyway. waiting. It's just waiting for schools and childcare services to be up and running again. And I give so much credit to all the parents out there because of course you love your children, but this is this is an incredibly stressful and unprecedented challenge. Um, It takes a village to raise children. And right now it's only household members. So a lot of credit to parents at the minute. Um, In terms of in households where there is violence occurring, you're absolutely right. Sometimes children are witnessing the violence. Sometimes they're targets. I actually worked with children who were witnessing violence in the home for about a year of my career back in the US. And I can tell you there's a lot, a lot of scientific research that shows that witnessing violence is just as damaging as experiencing violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just as scary. Mm -hmm. So it's damaging in different ways, but it's really detrimental to children's health and well-being. Mm -hmm. And a lot of survivors, part of their strategies to protect themselves, if there are kids in their homes, of course, it's going to include their children. So if their strategy is, okay, if things are really getting scary, we get out. There's a we there. And so the children also can't be leaving to go to the grandparents' house or to go to school while mom goes to work. And, you know, again, similar to the issue that I was discussing around doctors and dentists and the medical care profession being a safe place where survivors can either disclose what's going on at home or the providers will see. Similar Similarly, schools are oftentimes the first place where somebody, whether it's a teacher or a student aide or a principal, notices that a child's behavior is maybe a little different or that they need help or sees bruises. And so it's really hard because unfortunately, these kids as it is really struggle to find avenues to be able to talk about this because it's so scary and nobody talks about it. And also you feel like you're betraying your family, but then Mm -hmm, to also mm -hmm. cut off the ability for other adults in their lives to see something's wrong, something's going on, we need to help is um, a really scary situation. Can you think of ways how to help? I don't know know if any of these kids are listening now, now, but like how would you go about looking for solutions to get out? Because normally most of these kids are receiving online education now but Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any ways for the teachers to find out now and the the parents would typically be present um, so they don't have the freedom to uh, speak in privacy with the teachers so what do you think can be solutions I mean in the the previous episode we've discussed about like all of us addressing the situation if we know there could be something happening in our building or in our family but is there anything more it's 
it's really challenging because at the minute it's really adapting these survival techniques to be able to appease um, the abuser if there's a violent incident occurring so that things calm down or to get law enforcement involved because those are those are really the limited options at the minute but again like i said with the court systems and and law enforcement there are also issues there it's almost and like so, wait and see and until i mean the doors open and everybody has access to normal support structures it's really difficult to come up with anything intelligent it's, it's really about harm reduction honestly and i think the important thing from the standpoint of other adults and other people who are either involved in a family's life or who are in positions of local authority, of political power, etc., is again, make sure that survivors know what services are available. I mean, emergency shelters are still operating. And again, countries are trying to increase the number of SPEDs in hotels or in shelters. And so making sure people know that they, they aren't just stuck and that they can still protect themselves and their children. And then also, you know, I think for any parent who is who is going through an abusive situation at this time and having their kids present, I think just a reminder that the abuse is not your fault and you are doing the best you can in a really, really bad situation. So it's because there's a lot of guilt. A lot of parents feel guilt around having their kids in the home, whether they're witnessing violence or not. So yeah, these are beautiful words. And I thank you for that if anybody's... Uh... If it resonates, leave us a comment uh, under the video. I think it's, uh, it's going to be really helpful for everybody who's, uh, who's watching to see there is a vibe happening. And the more we address this um, um, this situation, the, the better, I guess. So thank you, Brianna, a lot. I don't know if there's anything you want to add at this stage because we've addressed this very complex issue for sure not uh, in its entirety. But yeah. I was going to say, there's, there's always more directions we can go in. But I think the only other aspect that I'll bring up is in terms of financial abuse and being able to empower survivors right now is another very exceptional time in that sense because, because some of these people, victims are financially dependent and what if they lost their job now right well exactly i think it's it's more that if i was working and i've now lost my job i might be more mm -hmm. dependent on my partner than usual mm -hmm. or on my family right because also sometimes like for example for members of the lgbtq community right now they may be stuck in their family home where they might be suffering from abuse or just very unpleasant living circumstances depending on their relationships with their family and they can't go to their their chosen family which is oftentimes friends or support services etc but either way that dependency on family members or partners becomes really problematic when there are those unequal dynamics of power and control So in the case of somebody who's lost their job during the pandemic, then the question is, okay, so now they have increased dependency on their partner who might, who in this case, we're talking about an abusive partner. So that's alarming in of itself in that moment, but then afterwards as well, how do they then, there's a lot of questions in terms of that. So this is something that really needs to be considered in a holistic way. These are, everything we've talked about so far is the tip of the iceberg. So I really welcome any comments, any questions, any feedback that we get, and I'm happy to talk more about this. And Excellent. dive deeper. Thank you so much. So for everybody, subscribe to the channel so that you know about future episodes. There might be more coming with Brianna. <laughs> 
and most importantly leave us your comments like the video or dislike if you dislike the topic and don't forget to share it with everybody who could benefit from this because it's very important so thank you so much Thank you for listening. For follow-up, you can find us on all major podcast platforms and all social media platforms, including our Instagram, Lights on Europe. So feel free to go there now and leave us your review, likes, feedback, as well as tips on who would you like to hear interviewed next time. Bye!